the, the first company in the world to sign a commercial own orbit servicing agreement. We did that in 2005. Uh, we did it with Singtel Optus to extend the life of a Boeing 601 HP satellite. And the whole premise behind that, and it was our elevator pitch to customers. Uh, if they have a vehicle at that time, you know, a 200, $250 million vehicle, our elevator pitch was is that for one third of the cost of replacement, now these satellites last 15 years. So you amortize the cost, you have a cost schedule. And the way it worked at that time was that it would take you about seven and a half, eight years to recoup your cost. And then the satellite was a money printer for seven years. And so the idea was, is that for one third of the replacement price, we can give you 10 extra years of service. And so that's an elevator pitch because immediately if you're pitching that to an executive, they go, oh, 10 extra years, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've got me a money printer. My money printer continues to function. This is Jason Canigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies and the host of this program, The Cold Star Project. I am here with the one and only Dennis Wingo, who I keep seeing everywhere <laughs> for about the last year or so, uh, tweeting and, and commenting and whatnot. He's the founder and CEO of Skycorp Inc. and author of a book called Moon Rush, Improving Life on Earth with the Moon's Resources. And I like that you call yourself a techno-archaeologist, Dennis. Thanks for being here on the show. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me today. It's uh, a lot of fun and uh, the whole techno-archaeology thing, and that's, that's a hoot nanny as well, as mm -hmm. we say in the South. <laughs> All right. Well, I moved to North Carolina, which is sort of the South from Vancouver about 10 years ago. So I'm ah. still getting used to that culture, although uh, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. So let's jump right in. Um, you have a lot of technical experience and worked on many, many projects. Uh, th there's a term here, advanced mission planning, that popped out at me from your LinkedIn profile as one of your specialties. Uh, can you define that for us and give us some examples of it in action? Well, advanced mission planning is, that's kind of a, a, they used to call it ideation or they call it in Hollywood ideation. Uh, advanced mission planning, uh, for example, uh, our friends at Northrop Grumman just uh, did a successful docking of the MEV-1 to the Intelsat satellite. Well, uh, that entire mission concept is one that I developed uh, along with some other others at a company we had called Orbital Recovery. Uh, and so that was kind of an end-to-end -end imagining of what is the lowest research and development cost, lowest cost to get to an operational system type of mission. So we, uh, my boss at that time said, you know, what is the least amount of money we, that we can spend in research and development to get to a viable product in uh, on orbit servicing? And so the mission concept of a parasitic vehicle that would dock to a geosynchronous communication satellite take over its attitude control and station keeping uh, was the result and uh, I applied for a patent on it which was granted and then eventually through many many toils and snares um, I ended up uh, selling that to uh, uh, Orbital ATK now Northrop Grumman and now that is executed. Uh, other examples are like on the moon if and this is in Moonrush is it how would we set up industrial facilities or what is the process and what are we going to do in the end for industrialization of the moon? So these are, these are the types of things in terms of both advanced mission planning, and I like to do the in the end from advanced mission planning in the beginning all the way through execution. Okay. And so it's, it's a, a larger, more strategic look at things rather than uh, just a piece of the puzzle? Well, it, it's, you know, if you use the military terms, it's uh, strategic planning along with tactical execution. Okay. Okay. So it allows you to start up here and come down to how are we actually going to do this? Yeah, general uh, to specific kind of format. Hmm. 
there is a thing that you like, which is called orbital assembly process. <laughs> and I like the idea very much as well. I'll talk with Gordon Ressler about this a little bit with the robots in space idea. How did you arrive at the conclusion that this is really a vital thing and what steps do you think are necessary for achieving it? Well, it goes back uh, actually to the historical aspect. If you go back and look all the way back to 1950, <clears throat> and uh, Dr. Von Braun's uh, relationship with Disney and showing how a space station would be uh, built in space, that's on orbit assembly. And because launch vehicles are intrinsically limited by the size of their fairing and how much volume you can put inside of that fairing and also other limitations related to uh, vehicle performance. There's only so much you can throw up at one chunk. Skylab was probably the biggest one chunk thing that humans have ever put into space. But if you look at the International Space Station, it's an own orbit assembled uh, facility. And so if you're going to do anything big in space, you need own orbit assembly. And there was a uh, uh, I was very fortunate to be at the University of Alabama Huntsville in uh, the late 1980s, 1990s, uh, and they had this incredible uh, place there called the Redstone Science and Information Center that unfortunately has now just been destroyed like most good libraries have been in the past few years. But they had this amazing compendium of different uh, uh, large space structure studies and, you know, different ideas for the space station and all kinds of really cool stuff. And if you look at what we actually want to do economically, uh, you know, again, at the end of the day, this is not just government space. This is we got to make a buck off of it. Um, if you look, there's a, let's call it a creative tension between small satellites in low Earth orbit and larger space vehicles in geo-orbit. Well, that paradigm kind of continues to widen as we go to smaller and smaller satellites in low Earth orbit. It is my opinion that we need to go to bigger and bigger uh, vehicles or installations, let's use the term installations, in geosynchronous orbit in order to A, compete with the little satellites, but B, to provide services that are simply not possible to uh, supply via the, the low Earth orbit satellites, no matter what size they are. And so the economics of geosynchronous orbit and the ability to uh, build things to make money, because at the end of the day, you've got to make money. And so if you look at how satellites make money. Satellites make money for the most part. Uh, I'd say the vast majority is that it directly scales with how much power you have and how big your antennas are. So, uh, and we say that, you know, for the most part, small satellites make small amounts of money because they only have small antennas, they only have small power supplies, small solar arrays. You get up to geosynchronous orbit, we already have today. You can buy satellites from Laurel or Boeing or whoever that are on the order of 20, 25 kilowatts. The problem is, again, launching these is one big integrated unit. The, the, there's a, um, what's called a U-shaped cost curve. And this was taught to me by a German rocket scientist, uh, Ernst Stuhlinger, and it goes for launch vehicles as well as satellites, is that on this side of the curve, the really, really small satellites are very expensive because, you know, it takes, it, there's a minimum amount of money it takes and all to get to orbit to start with and build a team and do all this. And so that's your revenue. And then you get here and small satellites are, are right about right here, today's CubeSats, then it gets cheaper and cheaper and it's cheap, cheap, cheap. But all of a sudden when you start getting into really bigger satellites, that U-shaped cost curve can, starts to climb again. And so what we want to do, and the small satellites have, the CubeSats have kind of moved the U in this direction, the bottom of the U, and we want to move the bottom of the U in the other direction um, via own orbit assembly. And so conceptually, that is what own orbit assembly is. Mm -hmm and the value proposition it brings to the commercial customer. Because if we, if, 
again, government only space only gets you so far and you end up with the bow, the problems we have today with the Boeings and the Lockheeds and the Northrop Grumman's of the world. Right. Well, I just learned something. <laughs> that idea of moving the curve over towards the larger uh, structures so that it can be more cost effective through on orbit uh, assembly is, is a good idea. I'm gonna, you've triggered a question in me that isn't on the list here, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, you don't have to answer it. Yeah, I could cut no it problem. out. But um, so, so I, you know, you're of the experience level of like, say, Dr. Rick Fleeter, who I work with, and you've I've seen a lot. Rick a long time. Right? Yeah. You've, he's he's a, our technical engineering advisor, thank goodness. Uh, so you've seen a lot, and you've seen space come to this point where it looks like it's going to flower into something bigger, and the commercial activity is going to grow on that. And then, um, you know, 20 years ago, it kind of collapsed, right? And mm -hmm. was very depressing to the folks who were involved in that, from everything that I can gather Myself from having interviewed. <laughs> yeah to a bunch of them okay so so what i'm curious about is is your perspective on today's um economics because you are cognizant of look this has to make money and and this situation and and are there you know are there similarities big differences is there stuff that makes you feel more optimistic or are, are you wary as well i'm always wary um because just part of my own story is that i founded mm -hmm. skycorp in 1998 right. uh, at the behest of a friend of mine who worked for a venture capitalist who wanted to capitalize on the small satellite market and uh, we had a, a idea for a small satellite constellation for basically what we now call the iot market mm -hmm. and we'd already had a term sheet had a 110 dollar invest 110 million dollar investment um, we'd already signed the term sheets, everything. We were just going through the final paperwork and Iridium goes bankrupt and the investors pulled the money. Hmm. Um, and so that created a collapse of other small satellite constellations, which created a collapse in the reusable launch market, which destroyed the confidence of the market in space for many years. And is only through really the, uh, of our friend Elon <clears throat> and people like Jeff Bezos is putting money in this himself, no matter what, that market confidence has returned and, and with the advance in avionics. And I think the advance in avionics has been a key enabler for the very small satellites um, over time here. And so it's a little different than before in that we have Elon now and we have a lower launch cost, but launch cost isn't everything because, mm -hmm. and I had this discussion with Elon in 2000, it was either 2002, 2003 when he was starting SpaceX. I said, if launch was free, if you were giving your launch vehicles away, there would still be an issue in the market of being able to one, catch up with free rockets and, and create new opportunities. Uh, so at the end of the day, the driver for space is what is your applications in space to make money? Uh, and and so launch costs, and Tori Bruno, if you follow on Twitter right here lately, Tori has talked about this, is that launch for most systems is a small part of the overall cost of a system that goes out there to make money. So, but what is different today is that we do have a, a much greater launch frequency with Elon's system being there, with ULA being there, with Jeff Bezos going to be coming on board with his system here very soon. Um, and, but the problem that is still there is the market demand. We just had a bankruptcy of OneWeb and they're going away. Um, the, there are several other non-Starlink satellite constellations um, that, especially due to the economics and everything going on right now with the uh, pandemic, are, are going to be problematic. Uh, I'm already seeing layoffs in the small satellite world. Uh, I'm already seeing um, a similar trend line, but it, at the end of the day, it's going to, it's going to end up with um, the market pull. I see some help 
from the government. Um, the Department of Defense in particular is much more proactive than they were 20 years ago in wanting to support new opportunities and new methodologies in space. And to me, it's mindset is that, uh, are there people out there willing to risk investment cash? Because there are economic models that will work, but it's getting the right cash to the right idea to execute. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I think we're at today. Um, there's, there's, you know, and the government is very helpful right now. Uh, uh, I'm still a little wary of NASA's uh, beyond low Earth orbit, but uh, NASA is, is doing a much better job at, at supporting commercialization today. And I want to congratulate Dr. Alex McDonald, a friend of mine, who is now um, the program executive for low Earth orbit commercialization. So, and when I started in this in 1998, the head of commercialization for all of NASA was a program exec buried in the food chain at JSC, even though both uh, George Abbey and Dan Golden were very supportive of commercial space at the time. Other factors kind of precluded us from going in the direction that we're going today. And so, to sum up, I think we're in a much better position, but it is a precarious position mm -hmm. that we're at that could still go south on us if uh, we don't watch ourselves. All right. Well, thank you for your perspective. <clears throat> I'm curious what your cat's name is, Dennis. Oh, uh, that's only one of them. That's Kirk. <laughs> okay. And then there's uh, Dax and Beer yeah. and yeah. Uh, Spock and Mimi, and they're all. <laughs> They're all floating around here yeah. right now. <laughs> very, very cool. Uh, Kirk may uh, uh, actually up. <laughs> make an appearance here. Shortly. All right. <laughs> well, that's okay then. It wouldn't so, be the first time he's done that in an interview. Right. As long as we tell the audience what's happening, they'll, they'll be cool with it. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate the perspective on that. Um, let's hop into a project that you worked on. And I'm going to read this out on the other screen because it's got a lot of words. So this is a DARPA thing. It's called Time Domain um, Skycorp Time Domain Relative Navigation System. Um, and this was something you worked on 2008 through 2011. I'm curious what happened there and what you learned. Well, <clears throat> that was uh, actually an SBIR that we were teamed with Time Domain, which is a company out of Huntsville, Alabama. And Time Domain was founded by a friend of mine by the name of Larry Fullerton. And Larry um, figured out what's called ultra wideband radio. And mm -hmm. he holds all the fundamental patents on ultra wideband radio. <clears throat> well, one of the things that ultra wideband radio allows is radar and they do the see-through walls radar and stuff like that and uh but uh it also provides very precise positioning and so we were working with darpa at the time and then i was also on contract with lockheed uh, advanced technology center to develop uh, uh, DARPA was pushing what's called fractionated satellites at the time. It was the F-6 program. It was a, a formation of satellites that carried out different functions, but all worked together as a gestalt um, to provide services. And that was considered to be more resilient, all the buzzwords. Uh, it was a very cool project, but if you're doing that, if you have a bunch of satellites that are flying together providing services to each other, you really need to know where each one of them are at compared to, each, to the other. And ultra-wideband radio is an excellent means to do that because ultra-wideband doesn't interfere <coughs> with other RF, narrowband RF, and uh, you can actually communicate as well as do positioning. Uh, and you're doing it at centimeter accuracy over hundreds of meters and all. And so it worked out actually very cool. And there's many other applications for this pertaining to uh, swarm robotics, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and I happen to know there's a major, major, major uh, Silicon Valley Corporation uh, that's working that issue right now in autonomous vehicles. Mm. 
I won't say which one, but uh, ultra wideband radio is a uh, is an enabler. It is an alternative to the lidar that some of the other major major really big corporations are using for autonomy. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, applications for that technology, like on the moon. And one of the architectural things that I, I'm interested in that instead of you know if we want to move if we're if we're doing propellant production on the moon or if we're doing metals production or doing industrialization on the moon how do we do that do we send these really big do we send a a, a d9 bulldozer to the moon uh class you know several thousand pound bulldozer to the moon to pick up and move regolith or could you do that with a swarm of 50 kilogram uh bulldozers and which will be much easier to build and much more resilient. You know, you don't have a single point failure. So there is a advanced mission planning here uh, aspect that if you had a whole swarm of these that worked together, that you were each other were in, in moving regolith, uh, you know, it might, you know, if you had 50 rovers moving a kilogram of regolith or 10 kilograms of regolith each, that would probably be more robust system than a single big D9 dozer mm -hmm. that has to pick up, you know, a big bucket and drive it over here. And, you know, so there's um, a lot of value in the time, the time domain relative navigation system, I think is a key enabler for such technologies on the surface <clears throat> where you don't have to have a lunar GPS system. Hmm. That, that that's important wow um and maybe on mars too oh interesting. yeah interesting anywhere yeah. yeah uh for folks listening or watching what dennis is talking about here is a great addition to what i've discussed with uh, dr paul van suzante and also nicole shoemaker those episodes talk about the difficulties of working with stuff on the moon the everything you think you know is just upside down there and so uh the idea of robotics and and multiple vehicles that are small rather than one big one um things tend to get chewed up really fast over there and uh, and so having a number of pieces that are working um are, are yeah, i think that's a much better idea you can always be repairing or replacing some rather than having one big one which was very expensive to ship there anyway and probably would need to be brought in pieces and then assembled uh fascinating in ancient times um the folks say sieging someplace would have a big army and those guys would have nothing to do all day so they might take a, a scoop of dirt and bring it over and if you have 10,000 guys or 30,000 guys scooping a small amount of earth you can build a hill up the wall of the fortification you're besieging so that that i think is the kind of thinking here that that applies well, that, well very that, very cool that's certainly the case even in 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 the americas with the um I'm from Alabama and they have the Moundville Mounds, mm. which are big Indian mounds. Some of them are over a hundred feet tall. That's exactly how they did it. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, One you don't need a, a giant earth mover, just uh, some guys <laughs> doing consistently over and over and over again, doing a small activity. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first and that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, Frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on. But business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk, but there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. 
So here's something that we have the compliance stamp on and we'll see <laughs> what, uh, what we can discuss here. I I'm curious to learn about this space logistics system that you licensed Orbital ADK, um, what it does and what you learned through the process of creating it and licensing it and then maybe supporting it afterwards. I don't know how that well, works. Well, uh, we actually founded a company and we were the, the first company in the world to sign a commercial own orbit servicing agreement. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we did that in 2005 um, with an Australian company, um, uh, I forget the name of it now, um, Singtail Optus. Mm -hmm. uh, we did it with Singtail Optus to do a, um, to extend the life of a Boeing uh, 601HP satellite. And the whole premise behind that, and it was our elevator pitch to customers. Um, if I have, uh, if they have a vehicle at that time, you know, uh, 200, $250 million vehicle, uh, our elevator pitch was, is that for one third of the cost of replacement, now these satellites last 15 years. So you amortize the cost, you have a cost schedule, and the way it worked at that time was that it would take you about seven and a half, eight years to recruit, recoup your cost, and then the satellite was a money printer for seven years. <clears throat> and so the idea was, is that for one third of the replacement price, we can give you 10 extra years of service. Hmm. And so that's an elevator pitch because immediately if you were pitching that to an executive, they could go, oh, 10 extra years, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've got me a money printer. My money printer continues to function. And we universally, and we founded this in uh, around March of 2002. And uh, when we started doing this, we uh, we had our coming out uh, satellite finance show in 2002, and we had universal acceptance by the geosynchronous communication and satellite business. Um, and but because our lead investor um, ended up. Uh, being arrested and spent seven years in club fed hmm. that kind of put a crimp in our plans uh, for commercialization and so <clears throat> after the company's demise uh, the and most of our investors at the time were european uh, aerospace companies and how we ended up in europe is a whole nother story um, but at that time we had a bunch of european uh, investors and all and they gave me back the patent and so we took that and uh, one of our potential investors had been or had been ATK. And uh, so we'd worked with them and talked to them. And then after Orbital Recovery's demise, they came to me and said, hey, would you license it? And we talked and we did. And I supported them technically and all in the beginning of their prog process. And then years later, we sold the patent to them, uh, which enabled them to sign their commercial on-orbit servicing agreement mm -hmm. with uh, Intelsat. And then five years later, uh, in February of this year, they did the first mission uh, and successful. And Intelsat is thrilled because, again, one of the things, and in, in I learned more about this myself, but think of it th this way is that in large corporations like this, you have CapEx, you have OpEx, and CapEx is normally on an amortization schedule. Hmm. And for a geosynchronous satellite, I think the amortization schedule is, you know, it's, it's one of these curves over time. It's an exponential decreasing curve. But a 15-year-old satellite has essentially uh, no uh, CapEx value. It's a completely amortized uh, capital asset. Mm -hmm. So if you go up and say, hey, Mr. Intelsat or whoever, mm -hmm. as a service, we will take over your attitude control and station keeping and keep your satellite operational for X number of years. So now I've just moved the cost from CapEx into OpEx, mm -hmm. which is fully uh, write it off every year. Mm -hmm. It's an operational expense. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I've just helped, especially in a company that is financially constrained the way Intelsat is right now, uh, the CapEx is much less. I move it into OpEx, it's completely write-offable. And then if the satellite breaks and you just say, well, we're done with the service, go somewhere else. Um, it has many, many, many financial uh, 
um, advantages to the customer. And at the end of the day, the way you make money in your business is to help your customer make more money. And if you're, if you know, you have to provide a compelling value to your customer. And that is what the MEV does is that Intelsat has brought this satellite that was dead. It was in the graveyard orbit. They brought it back down. They put it back in commission. Boom. They're making money again. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and that money more than covers uh, the cost of the servicing mission. And so it's really a win-win for everyone. And so in looking at making a successful space technology development program, which is what, uh, whether it's the orbital recovery, our vehicle was called the um, uh, orbital life extension system, uh, CXOLEV and SMARTOLEV, orbital life extension vehicle, um, you have to architect your technology idea in a manner that plays to the financial advantage of your customer. And it is non-obvious uh, at many times how that actually gets architected. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and, and what does that cost? And it goes back to something I said earlier, what is the lowest cost own orbit servicing system in research and development in a parasitic vehicle, which is what the MEV is. And what a parasitic vehicle is, is that you have a geo satellite here, it comes up and docks with it. And so the parasite or the tug takes over the attitude control and station keeping. And so no longer does the parent spacecraft have to do that. It just operates as transponders. And so because running out of fuel, that's the first thing that that's the thing that happens that damages the economic value of these satellites. And so if you play to these different financial aspects, there opens up another entirely new economic model for space. And uh, we worked very closely with the satellite insurance industry and there is a codicil in every single satellite operator insurance policy that says if your satellite fails for a reason X, Y, or Z, you are required as a basis of your insurance to do everything possible or practical to mitigate the loss to the insurers. Now, before an own orbit servicing vehicle is up there, an own orbit servicing vehicle is not part of the practical methods for mitigating loss. But now there's actually a successful own orbit servicing vehicle up there. So now the insurance underwriters can say Intelsat or Utilsat or whoever, there is now a methodology, say a thruster uh, leaks and you run out of fuel or something like that. So now the insurance companies can say, you know, you need to use that own orbit servicing vehicle because you got a $100 million satellite or a $300 million satellite that's still got 10 years of good life left on it, but it's out of fuel because of you had a problem or your thruster stuck or something like that. And so now you have changed the whole insurance paradigm. And this is what happened in the 1980s with NASA and the space shuttle and the missions to where they went up in a satellite would fail, the uh, upper stage would fail in low earth orbit and they retrieved these satellites, put new upper stages on them and sent them on up to geo orbit. But until you have it, the operator comes back and says, well, the, the service isn't up here yet. These guys are talking about it in two or three years, but it's not here yet. Now that it's here, it changes the economics of commercial space. And that is what we communicated to ATK, Orbital ATK, and now Northrop Grumman. And they are reaping the benefits of the risk that they eventually took. And it was with a lot of pain and suffering inside of uh, the respective companies that they did that. But again, a technological solution that solves an economic problem that makes your customers more money. Right, wow. <laughs> that was eye-opening. Uh, we're talking my language here, the, the shift of the money from CapEx to OpEx, for example, and where those expenses go, because there was no room left in CapEx. Um, this kind of category of the money is really, really important. Um, 
one of the things that, that I've seen a lot is the desire for those manufacturing satellites to want to get rid of the testing as much as possible because that's kind of a dead cost on the side of things, right? They want to but get that isn't. thing up there. It isn't, right. But if, so what I want to do is change the category of where that is, right? So that, so that it's more palatable to people who are more money, financial oriented and less engineering testing oriented, right? Yeah, so well, yeah, eat their medicine, I guess, a little bit more. But my, my position on something like that mm -hmm. is that we see the result of that mindset at Boeing yeah. today. Okay, mine is to take the the econo economist that, that said that and says, see this piece of glass right here, bam, 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 <laughs> bam, bam, you know, wake up. Yeah. Uh, that, that, is a, that is what they're taught in business school. Mm -hmm. That's what these economists and economic and finance people are taught, but they're taught wrong. Mm -hmm. And inadequate testing is what gave us the 737 MAX. Mm -hmm. Uh, inadequate attention to engineering discipline as well. And how much is that costing Boeing a month right now? It's costing right. them a billion dollars a month. You simply cannot skimp on the most important aspect of all in the development of, of a system. And I'll give you another example. Um, and this is with functional operational companies that are doing this. Um, and I can't tell you the company, but a friend of mine who works for a satellite operator said one third of the cost of a geosynchronous communication satellite is rework on the manufacturing mm -hmm. floor. I believe it. Yep. And so as a test engineer, which is my background at the end of the day, I go, okay, how can I streamline those costs? How can I make, how can technologically I achieve the same goal, which is a quality product but at a lower cost mm -hmm. and there's ways of doing this and, and i go back to my early days in the computer industry um we you know we had wave soldering machines to send boards through and instead of giving these boards to the technician which i was getting paid pretty good money to debug boards you know we would go through we call what's called cherry pick and we get the boards that passed uh initial testing and then we'd hand them off to the systems guys and but at that time, only about 50% of the boards made it. And then you'd have to see and you had to troubleshoot. Well, I get paid a lot of money, but my boss had a really good idea. We had these um, young Hispanic women who were inspectors. And so what we would do is that we would give all the bad boards to them first hmm. and say, okay, look for errors because about 20, the 25% of that remaining 50% or half of that remaining 50% were uh, uh, shorts caused by solder, hmm. little, little solder balls or little pieces of solder. And so, you know, we give someone who gets paid a lot less money, they had fixed half the boards without ever having to do anything but physically examine the boards. So rather than spend my time and so that's an economic way mm -hmm. and you look for economic ways of actually improving your manufacturing process and all like that you know and eventually they came up with much better soldering machines and stuff like that but the principle is and this goes to the geosynchronous communication satellite then that that, that one third of the cost is today mm -hmm. and so how do we improve that process and that's one of the things i'm working on today Okay. Well, I like it. Yeah. We do not need a rocket scientist to be able to diagnose a lot of these problems is, is the lesson from, uh, from the circuit board example. We give yeah. it to somebody, a resource that costs a lot less uh, and filter and then make sure your time is spent on the weird stuff. Yeah. And <laughs> so, don't, and don't yeah. move your corporate headquarters to Chicago. Hmm. <laughs> another another big takeaway so we have this recent executive order Dennis on uh, April 6th from the White House on the use of space resources uh, do you have any thoughts about that well I think it is probably one of the most important executive orders in space in the past 50 years how's that okay <laughs> why and how so well um 
And when the Outer Space Treaty was passed in 1967, I guess it is, and the United States acceded to it and the Russians and everyone else that set, let's call it the baselines for how we comport ourselves in mm. space. And um, so there was all of this language in there and all about how to do things. And, and but there was a lot of ambiguities and a lot of times uh, agreements are written in a way that ambiguities are intentional mm. in order that to kick the can down the road, let people worry about it later. Well, there was a follow on to the outer space treaty called the moon treaty that was attempted uh, uh, in the United Nations. Uh, but uh, through uh, the efforts of people like Jerry Pornell and a lot of space, the very earliest victory of the space advocacy community in the United States was to block our signing and uh, uh, Senate confirmation of the Moon Treaty because the Moon Treaty was much more restrictive with all of this, let's call it quasi-communist view uh, that you know the universe is the common heritage of all mankind and blah 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 and the language was written in a manner that would preclude uh, um, basically capitalism in space and so uh, even though we didn't sign it there was a few countries who did and so it was not quite a dead letter because I think they required 10 countries before it came into force and but it's only in force on those 10 countries but uh, over time, uh, with let's call it the the growing interest and or capability to do things like what I talk about all the time, which is lunar industrialization, the utilization of resources, uh, John Lewis with mining the sky and mm -hmm. things like that, there became a let's call it a renewed interest by certain countries to implement the Moon Treaty and. In the past several years that, let's call it this background effort, because the way most politics works in the world is that um, these agreements that you see is, is the result of a lot, a tremendous amount of discussion in the background over time and agreements and everybody kind of figures out, okay, this is what we can pass. and. Well, there was a big move and it's been going on for several years to kind of get the moon treaty done through the back door because if the European Union accedes to it or a certain number of countries in the European Union accede to it, then it becomes binding on the entire European Union. If it becomes binding on the entire European Union, then that puts a constraint on the United States and our ability to do things because, you know, you don't want to go completely contrary to everybody in the world. And so now, as a, in my opinion, as a means to short circuit what has been going on in the background in the past several years, the um, United States came out with a very forward-looking document that basically say we repudiate the concept that uh, the moon and all celestial objects are the common interest of all mankind. And it opens up the door to create regulatory certainty that starts to allow uh, companies to make investments to go and acquire, obtain, and sell these resources. Um, and there's other efforts underway here in the United States. There's a, a effort by uh, some people um, well, there's been some papers out on it, but I'm not going to name any names to create a uh, extraterrestrial materials um, futures market. And this would be for water, this would be for metals, this would be for finished products, this would be for things manufactured, obtained from resources off planet, whether that be the moon, the asteroids, Mars, wherever. And so it starts to create all of the normal economic levers that are used to integrate a new resource base or new technological base because space resources is obviously the largest resource base thousands of you know orders and orders of magnitude larger than our resource base here on the earth 
And if we start putting together the legal and regulatory systems for that, we start to be able to, to move forward. Well, that's super exciting. <laughs> I like it. Um, and it also explains that despite it being a relatively short executive order, um, all the space lawyers I know have jumped on it and gone, oh my gosh, do you know how important this is? And started uh, sharing various opinions about it. So thank you yeah. for explaining. I didn't know about the, the potential futures market, but that that's a no-brainer idea, really, when you, yeah. <laughs> when you start see, considering you, you, it. That's not something, you know, and uh, those of us who are principally technologists, we can't foresee everything and we can't cover every single base out there. And mm -hmm. so we have allies who work these kinds of things, who are from Wall Street and who are from the, uh, these dif different economic and legal segments of our society that themselves want to do things in space. But since they can't build a satellite or a launch vehicle, um, it, it's now space is now mature to the point where these people can make very material uh, contributions to systematize and organize our ability to uh, obtain, process, and use extraterrestrial resources. Mm -hmm. And those are all words that I like, <laughs> systematizing and processing and organizing. <laughs> it's all, all what this company's about. Awesome. Well, let's finish up with this question, Dennis. Um, you have identified some economic reasons to return to the moon. You've talked to them about uh, them in your book. And also you had a, a blog. You've got your own blog. You should tell us what the link to that is. And I will link to it in the description it's below. Just well. DennisWingo.wordpress.com. There you go. Uh, so, why should we go back to the moon? Well, again, the moon, you know, if we didn't have a moon, we'd have to invent one. Um, the moon is the nearest. It's only three days away. Uh, it's close enough to be able to operate things from the Earth via telepresence. Uh, the moon has tremendous resources. Uh, I, and when I first started getting in this in the 1980s, uh, I was part of a group putting together the RFP for the very first private mission to the moon called Lunar Prospector mm. <clears throat> that eventually flew as a NASA mission in 1998. But we were at Princeton and uh, I was there and I was very new. I was still a student and, and I was very new to the whole, let's call it the whole um, community. And I met a gentleman who is just a wonderful fellow, one of my mentors. Uh, his name is Dr. John Lewis, mm -hmm. who wrote uh, the books, The Reign of Iron and Ice and Mining the Sky. And John, you know, we have different churches. We have the Mars Church, which is Bob Zubrin, or, you know, we have the Moon Church, which is me and Paul Spudis and Bezos and people like that. And then you have the Asteroid Church. And John was part of the Asteroid Church. And he called the Moon the slag heap of the solar system. <laughs> and, you know, I start thinking about that. I'm going, well, yeah, okay, that's fine. But slag heaps are actually very valuable mm -hmm. uh, if you know how to process them. And the moon actually does have a tremendous amount of resources. And as I wrote in my book, Moon Rush, uh, the moon uh, has impacted asteroids, and we're pretty sure of that. Uh, uh, and one of the things I'm working on is increase what's called the p-value, or the confidence level in those metals, because if we get the p-value up to around 0 0.9, 0 0.8, 0 0.9, we can start selling those metals on the metals futures market. Uh, and so, uh, looking at that and looking at the resources, and we know from the Apollo missions, and this is the value of Apollo, far more than beating the Russians to the moon is those 842 pounds worth of rocks. We now know what the moon is largely comprised of and all of these tremendous resources. And today with all of the advances that we have in attitude manufacturing, uh, 3D printing, uh, just all kinds of different processes and industrial processes like vacuum metals and alloys that we just didn't have 50 years ago. We now have all of the stew. We have all the ingredients of the stew, 
for lunar industrialization. All we need to do is throw them all in a pot and cook them and make it work. And so, you know, that's where I work the advanced concepts for the moon. I'm actually writing a chapter in another book right now that uh, uh, Dr. Clive Neal is going to kill me for even taking this time to be on this show uh, because I got to finish this chapter. But lunar industrialization is the linchpin, just as the space station is the linchpin and low Earth orbit for humans. The moon is the linchpin for humanity to sustainably go to Mars, colonize Mars, acquire the resources of the asteroid belt, and move humanity further out into the solar system. All right. Well, very, very cool. And the statistician in me is very glad to hear about the p-value things <laughs> and getting that up. All right, man. Well. That has been really eye-opening to talk to you. I learned, uh, well, three or four brand new things to me that I can point out, which is a high number of, uh, of insights. So thank you very much for those. Uh, my guest today has been Dennis Wingo, techno-archaeologist, founder and CEO of Skycorp, Inc., and author of Moonrush, Improving Life on Earth with the Moon's Resources. Uh, where can people connect with you, Dennis? Well, Wingo D on Twitter. Uh, I, I'm there all the time. Uh, I write my blog. You can post on my blog. Uh, it's moderated, so don't be an idiot. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I'm out there. Uh, I've been online. I've been on the internet since 1984. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm, I ain't hard to find out there. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I watched a couple of your talks on, uh, on YouTube as well. There will be uh, plenty of other things for people to see and hear from you if they just go and look right. for your And name. make sure you send me the link to this one so I can I post it on Twitter. Definitely. Thanks for being here, Dennis. Thank you, sir, very kindly. You have a great day. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory compliance and gosh the end customer who'd have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com MSB and join us on the mission to make space boring. Mm -hmm.